Hello, everybody. Welcome to yet another exciting episode of Views on View. I am Steve Edwards, the host with the face for radio and the voice for being a mime. And if you're watching on YouTube, you can see that. And I am flying solo today. And we have a special returning guest slash host slash guest in Mr. Austin Gill. How are you doing, Austin? Hey, I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. So Austin and I are both here in the very wet and dreary spring Portland, Oregon where it is cold and rainy and still feels like we're in winter, which is really great for those of us that are skiers because there's still a lot of good snow on the mountain, but not for everybody else. Uh, by way of background, Austin, first, we had first had Austin on Views on View uh, to talk about his little passion project called Viewtensils. And we can talk about that in a minute. And then he hosted for a while and then decided, I'm going to do my own podcast. And so, uh, as far as I know, he's still been doing that. So, how you doing, Austin? You want to give us a little background? Tell you where you've been. Tell us where you've been for the past couple of years, because things have certainly changed for you. Oh yeah, um, it's been good. I yeah, man, summer's just around the corner, Steve. It's coming. It's happening. Petalpalooza is going to happen for anyone that's in the Portland area. It's going to be great. I'm at so least summer excited. as we get it here in Portland. <clears throat> it's uh, camping and river floats. I can't wait. Yeah, so I guess, what have I been up to? Um, still working on the utensils. It is a little passion project that comes from, uh, you know, I guess let's give a background on what what it is, right? So so it was a project that I started a while back um, that was essentially the result of working on several projects over and over in Vue and copying a lot of the same code and just like getting rid of all the styles from one project and applying new styles to another. So Vutensils is a, a collection of what I like to call naked components. Um, some people call them headless components, although it's not quite that because the, the headless component concept is it just provides functionality and then you provide all of the markup. Um, the goal with Vutensils is to provide a very uh, bare bones as, as minimal uh, or tooling is needed, uh, basically no styles, uh, a bunch of components that have no styles. It's just bare bones, HTML and functionality. And the goal being that you have um, a foundation upon which to build completely bespoke, totally unique custom uh, designs, applications. And the thing that's kind of the center of focus on utensils is that, yeah, it doesn't have all of this extra bloat that you have to uh, download or, or like add to your bundle size or wrestle with, uh, you know, strict CSS, uh, specificity. Um, but all of the components are designed to be, um, to follow best practices in accessibility. So yeah, it's essentially a project that I've been carrying around for a while and slowly upgrading. And, um, since the last time we have talked, there's been a few upgrades. I still am kind of one of those people that perpetually avoids pushing to a version one because it never quite feels finished. But there's a lot of things that are, uh, there's a lot of things that I've used on a lot of projects and feel very good and confident about. And I guess the biggest changes have been things around uh, how I've been working with forms. So a couple of quick questions real quick. Well, I said quick, that's the Department of Redundancy Department. Um, <laughs> what versions of you do you support? Uh, so it was originally written to support Vue 2, and it currently supports Vue 2 and Vue 3. Oh, okay. Um, there's a couple of things in there. There's like a couple of experimental things around um, composables. But for the most part, everything that you interact with is either a component or a uh, directive, um, or I think you can use filters still. But yeah. And then in terms of, you know, bring the bare bones means you're going to apply your own CSS. And the examples you have is for, you know, your standard CSS um, elements and, and uh, good Lord, I can't think <laughs> the words I'm looking for. Your standard CSS, like in a style script, but I, I assume you could also work with something like a Tailwind or Uno CSS or some other JavaScript library as well. Yeah, so pretty early on, um, th I mean, th the challenge with, uh, creating components that are not entirely headless components is that uh, as a component author, I want to be responsible for the markup and the functionality to make it accessible. Because at the end of the day, 
because accessibility is kind of the most important thing to me in this library uh, and getting a head start on um, building out an application, you have to have control of the markup to make something accessible. Um, and so when you control the output of the markup, it introduces a challenge uh, for component authors or for library authors of how do you provide styling options, right? Because if you control the markup, then how do you allow people to inject custom classes like Tailwind or Uno CSS or, you know, whatever. Um, so there's a couple of different approaches that I provided with um, Tailwind, which is if you just like writing traditional CSS in a CSS file, cool. All of the elements on the page or in the component are going to have uh, CSS classes available, whether they include styles or not. And that's kind of a, a little hook in that people can use to target uh, specific elements in a component and apply CSS rules to it. Uh, or if you want to have your own custom classes injected into the component uh, at the correct element in the markup, then there's sort of like an API for that through props. You can pass a, a prop called classes, and then for each element on the page, there's like a, a different um, key or property on that object. So are you using like the adders, the built-in adders type of functionality where you can define something in a, in a, uh, in a component definition and then it just passes it through, if you know what I'm talking about, or is it this yeah, more specific so target? I, yeah, I think that's I think that's called like uh, pass through props yes. or something. Um, mm -hmm. It's basically a feature that not every uh, JavaScript framework supports. Like, I don't think React does that, but there's a way to essentially have. Um, well, what what Vue does is when you have a component, when you've defined a component and you use it in a parent component, and you pass any sort of props or attributes onto that you know custom component name. Uh, those will automatically be appended to the root DOM node of the uh, component, the child component, right? Mm -hmm. And what you can do is essentially tell Vue, hey, I don't want you to uh, pass through those props onto the root. I want to control where those get passed to. So a good example of this is if you wanted to create a custom input component, um, you probably want to allow for component consumers uh, or parent components to be able to define all of the HTML attributes that would exist, that you would expect to exist on an input component. But if you're using a custom component, then uh, the implementation depends on how those attributes get added to the input. So if your actual input, custom input component has a div as the root element, inside of which there's probably a label and then the input element or whatever, uh, then you would want to uh, actually inherit the attributes from the parent, but only pass them to the input component or the input element. Sorry. Does that make sense? Mouth blogging yeah. is really hard. And <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a nuanced thing. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I saw that just because my inertia, running inertia project uses, uh, I copied a lot from inertia's ping CRM demo application. And they have a whole list of different input custom components for dropdowns and nabs and modals and text inputs and so on. And they use that quite a bit uh, yeah. where they use the dollar adders uh, mm -hmm. you know, class, for instance, and then pass that in. So then you just, in your wrapper where you're calling, you just pass whatever classes and that gets applied. So yeah, yeah. it's a pretty cool little thing. Yeah, it's a challenge because it really blurs the lines between what is an HTML attribute and what is a prop like a mm -hmm. you know, library component prop. Yeah, yeah. It took me a little while to get my head around it because I was trying to figure out how the heck are my classes getting into here? Oh, that's it. Yeah. little reading of the docs. Cool. So um, before I forget, there's one thing I wanted to ask you about. You had, and we were, we were going to transition into talking about using the platform as compared to always downloading a new library. But you had a blog post that went to like number one on Hacker News a little while ago, didn't you? You were like world famous, and I was going to see if I could get your autograph. Uh, so I could say I knew you win. What was that about? Yeah, I don't know. I, I've had that happen maybe once or twice. Um, but maybe the one you're talking about is uh, that HTML 
there's the there's a mechanism in HTML that can essentially access a user's camera. Yeah. And so the way it works is I think you you create an HTML uh, input element and you give it uh, oh I forget I forget the attribute name. Maybe I can look that up. Yeah, here. I found oh. it here. It's uh, you can access the user's camera with just HTML. Yeah. So there's an attribute that you can pass to the input element. And essentially what it does is uh, where normally you would have a file picker that opens up the file picker UI on the operating system, which would likely be a phone because this doesn't work in desktop. But uh, if, you act, if you activate a, a file input on your phone, normally it opens up your file picker UI native to the operating system. But when you can activate the camera, uh, you can tell the device whether you want to capture the environment, which is the outward facing camera, or you want to capture, uh, I forget I forget what they call it, but it's basically the front facing camera. Mm-hmm. And optionally audio, like microphone stuff. Well, it's the user attribute, is, according to blog posts. The, the user attribute. User facing okay. or front facing camera. Yeah, and yeah. Or microphone. Um, and so in this way, uh, it's kind of interesting because it sounds a lot scarier than it is, uh, in that it's not like just HTML can start accessing a camera. Uh, it requires user interaction, first of all. So the user has to, uh, have knowledge that they're clicking something, which still, I guess you could hide the file input visually. Um, and then two, the actual stream of data coming from the camera is not passed to the HTML in the same way that uh, the JavaScript API can work. With the JavaScript API, you you know you turn on the camera and then you can see like in the in the application that we are running right now, I can see through your camera feed because you've allowed camera access and now the JavaScript on the page has a way to read the stream and push the pixels onto the page. That's not the same in HTML. In HTML, the way it works is essentially the camera opens as a for a for a moment, and then once the camera captures uh, a photo, then what HTML has access to is the location on the device where that photo exists. Same as if a user were to select a file from their UI. So permission-wise, um, it's kind of the same. Uh, I think I did have a conversation with someone that there may still be security concerns depending on whether location data is transmitted with the file that the user selects or potentially if they forget that they left the camera on and took a photo or something and like, you know, show a picture of their kid or something. Um, I don't know, but it's uh, probably not as scary as it sounds, but still kind of interesting. Right, so we'll put a link to the... uh article in show notes. It's called on austingill.com, T-I-L. You can access a user's camera with just HTML. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and that kind of that kind of draws into, um, I've been going down this, this long winding path on uh, learning web fundamentals, which I hesitate to say it that way because it sort of harkens back to the conversation around you know, should new developers learn fundamentals or learn a library first? And I think that these sorts of fundamentals are not, maybe fundamental is the wrong word. It's like things that are built into the platform that are available. Um, And it may be the JavaScript programming language. It may be JavaScript APIs available via the browser. It may be things that are available in HTML. Um, But these things that are, you know, foundationally built into the platform, but are also kind of weird esoteric knowledge that you don't necessarily need to build every single application, um, but are still kind of interesting and useful in the right use case. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, use the platform is the phrase that comes to mind when I, you know, hear discussions about this instead of, you know, having to do, you know, something special on top of that to get what you want when you've already got the tools available there, right? Reinventing yeah. the wheel, I guess, would be another great way to put it. Um, it depends, you know, I guess it depends on when you got into the web, um, sort of. You know, we had this interesting discussion with Taylor Otwell 
when we talked about Laravel and he was talking about trying to what to put in his docs because of who you see coming in where it used to be people had all kinds of PHP knowledge. And now you see people that are just in the front end and have no PHP knowledge. Mm -hmm. And my point was that, well, yeah, look at when people got in. So someone like myself, and this dates me, you know, when I first started playing with websites in the late nineties, you know, when uh, Microsoft front page was still a thing. And, you know, you had to know raw HTML and raw CSS and raw PHP because libraries didn't exist. WordPress didn't exist yet. Drupal didn't exist. You know, Node was, you know, a good 15 years away. Um, jQuery wasn't even around, really. And so you had to know the fundamentals, right? You had to know what was there. Unfortunately, the fundamentals were pretty limited. <laughs> the browsers didn't have a lot of the stuff that they do. HTML didn't have a lot of the elements that it does now. CSS certainly didn't have a lot of the things that have been added over the years. So you had to know those. And so that was how you got jQuery, right? So the biggest, the biggest thorn in jQuery side, in, excuse me, in the JavaScript world was browser interoperabil interoperability because you had Microsoft trying to rule the world with Windows and Internet Explorer, I mean, Explorer, you know, you had Netscape, then Firefox came on the scene, and then Chrome came on the scene, you had you had to do different things. And so the whole idea of jQuery was let's unify everything into one place where you can do that. And so jQuery became, you know, huge, humongous, it's still a thing out there quite a bit. But the browser started implementing jQuery into their own functionalities now. And so that's why jQuery is not so necessary anymore because they said, hey, we should, we need to do this stuff for everybody, you know, without having used jQuery. And so they did. So if you get somebody that comes in, you know, say later on, say 2010, 2012, I guess, maybe my years are off. A lot of these tools are out there that can do stuff for you real easy. So you just jump in and start using those, right? You don't need to know the fundamentals because there's so much stuff that does things for you. And so... You know, all that to say, I think it depends on when you come in and, and what you're using. Now, me for myself, I, I did the, you know, there's the classic, do you learn the language and then the library framework? Or do you learn the framework and then exactly. the language? I did it the second way. <laughs> I learned actually, well, sort of. I did PHP by itself, you know, for a long time up through 2005, 2006 that I got into Drupal and learned Drupal. And through that, I learned a lot more PHP, especially some of the object-oriented stuff. Later on, I learned JavaScript through jQuery. Um, I have I have one, if you remember Rocks Publishing, and if you go back that far, Austin, the Red Books, um, uh, I, I had a ton of their stuff. In fact, this is Bookzilla. I'll hold it up on YouTube. Beginning <laughs> JavaScript, you know, and this is, I can't remember oh what year. Oh my gosh, look at that thing. By Paul Wilton. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's got to be three inches thick. Not an exaggeration. Like this thing three trees. Huge. Yeah, and, it is, and I remember actually conversing with the author, Paul Wilton, over email. And just, he had me some questions about what I thought about his book and that kind of stuff. But I tried to, and I got maybe a little ways in. It's like, oh my gosh, this is too hard. <laughs> Yeah, I decided I'm going to focus on backend development, and I did for a long time, right? But once I got into jQuery, and then once I got into Angular, the original Angular and Vue, I went backwards and then started learning some of the fundamentals of, of JavaScript. So um, hopefully all that made sense. It was one of my normal diatribes, but <laughs> your thoughts? Yeah, I, I, I think so. And I, I think that that's an interesting conversation because people take strong opinions on both sides, and I just don't think that I don't think that there's a clear-cut answer for someone that's learning. Um, if you want to build something and just, you know, you have an idea and you want to get it out into the world, then learn a framework or a library and then build out your thing. And, and that's going to get you, like, the the fastest path to, to complete. But then uh, learning the fundamentals or the language or the underlying thing... Um, Understand, having a deeper understanding of how things work uh, is required, is necessary if you ever need to transition to a different framework or a different language. Like those are transitional skills that are going to apply no matter what. And I think that's why so many people um, promote using the platform or learning the platform or learning the language first because, you know, maybe they're in their experience, that's how they did it, or that's how they wish they would have did it, or or something like that. And I, I just think, ultimately, it's a dance where you have to participate on both sides. 
Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, you know, say a view single file component versus a React component where React is using JSX, you know, render functions, that kind of stuff. At the end of the day, you still got to have valid HTML for your browser. So if you don't know what you need to output, then, you know, all the fancy stuff on top of that that helps you isn't really much good. Yeah. Um, the same with CSS. You know, you could use an Uno or a Tailwind or Atomic CSS, or you could use Bootstrap or, you know, Beautifier, Bulma or whatever. Those classes are just a layer on top of, of what you got to do. It's like a computer. What is, you know, all code compiles down into binary, right? Zeros and ones. And the same is with any framework, any CMS, any library, any tool. At the end, you got to have your basic HTML and CSS. And so if you don't know what that end result needs to look like, then you're, you know, you're flailing probably a lot more than you would be if you did know the basics. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a weird balance of of knowing knowing how everything works, but then also giving yourself the freedom to not understand everything so that you can actually be productive. Right. Because there's there's more to learn. If you want to understand how everything works, you're going to need at least five lifetimes in this industry, <laughs> you know? Like right. It's, there's just no way. Uh, the 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 iceberg just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyway, uh, I think I think that this stuff is is fascinating and, and important. And the way that it's it's sort of um, shown up in my experience or career is that the underlying like I, I do a lot with Vue, you know, and I, I maintain this Vue library. But more and more, I find myself wanting to move code out of what the actual framework does and offers and more into what is built into the platform. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the reason being that, well, because lately I do a lot of things across different, I write a lot of code that's across different uh, frameworks or libraries or tools. And when I'm just writing JavaScript, I can just copy it from one place and paste it into another. I can go from React to Vue. I can go from Vue to Svelte. I can go from Svelte to Solid, you know, and all of that just plain JavaScript works. And that kind of, that's kind of similar to uh, some of the principles of good software design where you have clear and distinct contracts between uh, different entities in the system, right? where in one case, I can create an API that's going to uh, talk, uh, translate between what's going on in Vue and what, how the Vue event system works or how um, you know, props are being passed or whatever, and watchers and even from Vue 2 to Vue 3. Uh, but when all of those things happen in the context of Vue, I can use the Vue-specific language. And then when I have a certain... Uh, need that drops into just plain JavaScript, I can have a little bit of a of a translation layer between the two or a communication layer between the tr- two with a, a clearly defined contract and and have a clear separation of concerns such that the actual JavaScript logic uh, can work anywhere. And you can even say, you can even take that and apply it to have the same JavaScript run on the front end and the back end. And as long as you're not muddling some of the uh, context-specific details, like Node uh, or APIs that are only available in Node or APIs that are only available in the browser or this and that, um, as long as you keep those kind of separate, uh, then you can still apply. You can still take that same code, that's the underlying programming language JavaScript, and run it the same anywhere. Right. Yeah, uh, I've been, for static sites, you know, for your brochure type sites and and stuff like that, I've moved over to using Astro. Um, Hmm. We've had Fred Schott on here, one of the big Astro guys to talk about Astro. And what's cool about that is that the JavaScript that you write to query your data, and that's actually in your Astro uh, template files is, JavaScript. I mean, it's not Vue specific. You can drop in your Vue component or your React component or your Svelte component or whatever you want to do if you need something, you know, Vue specific. But that's code that I can take from one project to another, you know, right? And just plain JavaScript fundamentals for getting my data and for displaying it and then passing it into my child Astro component and so on. So that's one thing uh, I really liked about that. 
um, you know, the guy that I read and I haven't really done much of his coursework is Christopher and Andy. Uh, you know, he's the quote unquote vanilla JavaScript guy. And one in one of his newsletters, he made the point not too long ago that he's had people that will tell him, you know, I wrote this JavaScript program, you know, program eons ago, some site or application or whatever, haven't done anything with it. And I'll fire it up and open it up and it works fine because it's not dependent upon, you know, library updates and all the things that go into maintaining a, a tool uh, or, or a framework because it's just, you know, at its core, it's still basic JavaScript. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that principle of like code in frameworks that, that breaks because of upgrades or whatever, um, it's, it's a real, it's a real challenge. Like if you've, if you've had a project that you haven't touched in a year and you open it up and you try and, you know, NPM run dev or whatever, there's that bit of stress that's like, ah, is it even going to run right now? And if it's not, what is going to be the nightmare of pain that I'm putting myself through in dealing with upgrades, right? So, uh, yeah, I think for me, there's there's a, a strong attraction to also shifting things towards uh, more of the platform because it reduces the dependencies that I have, it reduces the number of dependencies, which can help with that upgrade story. Uh, it reduces the number of dependencies, with, which helps with um, some of the performance story, right? Um, if I can, if I can use fewer libraries in my project, then there's uh, less code that has to be downloaded and probably less code that has to run for that bit of logic to, to, to work. Um, so that, that makes me think, you know, the first thing I think of is, um, form validation libraries. Mm -hmm. It's one thing that, uh, I think are not really very necessary. Um, there's, you know, stuff that the browser provides for you that's built in HTML has, uh, the constraints API or the constraints attributes, um, validation attributes that, uh, you have that built into the browser. You know, you can do, do some things and have some very rudimentary, uh, some, this field is required, has to be an email, has to be this and that. And if you try and submit the form, uh, you get a pop-up that says, hey, you know, you, this is invalid or whatever. And there's a lot of interesting things that come along with that. Now, there is a limit to that because at some point, if you have a, if your application is very, very heavily dependent on very complicated forms with a lot of logic passing around, that that becomes a lot more complicated. Um, let's say even for something that's like uh, a password, a, a new user registration, they have to put in their e email and then they have to put in a password and then they have to confirm the password. Well, in order for password confirmation to work on client-side validation, uh, the second you know the password confirmation field needs to be aware of the data within the password, you know, the first password field, uh, which you can do with JavaScript, right? You can copy the value and put it and put it into a regular expression or a pattern matcher on the HTML or something like that. But it gets more complicated. Um, but I just, I, I personally just love um, following or, or um, sort of allowing the platform to dictate the direction of my work, like start there and take it as far as, it, as far as I can go. Uh, and, and form validation or form things to do with forms is something that I've fallen into very deeply as far as styling and JavaScript to go with forms and progressive enhancement. And that's a whole other subject to, to talk about, um, and things working with or without JavaScript available. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't want to tell people how to build their applications, but I will say that um, it's something that I've uh, st studied deeply and have my own strong opinions about how I want to build things uh, that I think are just more resilient. Uh, it's knowledge that's more transferable to any project and it works in more places. Yeah, in terms of forms, I mean, forms are notoriously difficult to deal with that's probably why there's so many tools out there right yeah. probably what <laughs> the the interesting dichotomy is probably one of the most used things on websites and it's also one of the most difficult <laughs> to work with you know one thing i've learned is you know form validation on the front end is only going to get you so far because your code's in the browser you know people can monkey around with things 
mm-hmm. from a security standpoint, uh, if you have a back end that can do that for you, that validation for you, then you're much better doing it there and returning, you know, an error or something like that. It's not always possible, you know, especially if you're say you're doing something like uh, something that has forms and you're posting to an online CMS, uh, you know, to a strappy or a contentful or sanity or butter, you know, whatever. Maybe there's some tools that they have on the back end that does some validation for you. But, you know, my when it comes to like Laravel, you know, and, and using the controllers and all the functionality on the back end and requests, I can, you know, dial in my validation of my data and, and what's required, what's not very easy, and then just, just return that to the front end whenever. But, but yeah, I think forms are difficult. There's a lot of tools, but in the end, you're only going to get so far, at least on the front end when it comes to form validation. Yeah, totally. And uh, absolutely, you should be valid. You should, you should only be trusting validation on the back end anyway. And so if you can't trust validation on the front end because a user can bypass it or modify it or whatever, then what is the point? Um, and I think that the point is as a user experience improvement, right? So that when a user wants to submit a form, they don't have to wait until uh, the page refreshes, the, the request goes to the back end, the back end validates it, the, the response comes back and let then lets the user know all of the issues that are wrong with the form, especially if they're going to do that one input at a time, right? Have you ever done that song and dance where you submit the form, there's uh, something invalid, yeah. it comes back and lets you know, and then you fix that and then you submit it again. And oh, the next field is also invalid and you know you have to right. fix it for each one. And so that's where uh, user experience is really important, right? By communicating clearly to users, uh, not just through validation error messages, but upfront, while they're filling out the form, what is expected of that input field? Uh, letting people know which fields are required. And if you're going to do that validation song and dance on the back end anyway, I don't really want to um, penalize my user by adding a validation library to my code, to the code that they're ultimately going to have to download onto their device, right? Which if you're talking about users that are on their mobile data plans, that could actually be costing them money. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I, I, not that I don't see the point, but I think I have to go, I think I have to go a long way before I say it's justified, especially because well, it's built in. It's right. Built into, well, well, I think there's a difference between validation and assistance is what I'm thinking about. So, you know, yes. when I think of validation, I'm saying, I'm thinking, okay, is this number in the right format? And we're going to tell you if it's not, you know, is this a number versus string text because it's only a number field, et cetera. And the stuff that I think, that's still valid in the forms, but isn't necessarily validation as sort of formatting helpers, like a mask thing, for instance. Mm-hmm. So let's say, oh, yeah, yeah. so let's say for instance, one of the ones I figured out, I was stressing about, you know, when I was rebuilding my app right now was, you know, a classic date picker, you know, there's Beautify or Boomer or Bootstrap View or whatever, they'll all have date picker stuff built in. And I started re- looking in and realized, heck, the browser's got one built in and it works great. <laughs> You know, I just use it, I have to look at my field, but you can just tell it that it's a date field and pass a couple other parameters in and it gives you a nice date picker. You bring up, you know, select your dates, click, it puts it in your format, you save it to your backend, you're good to go. I didn't have to use any JavaScript at all to do that. Um, I think there's some other type of stuff with with form fields. I think, you know, for some stuff, you will need JavaScript. Um, and the one comes to mind is maybe like uh, phone number formats or uh, maybe some date formatting, uh, identifier type numbers, because you have neat, unique requirements depending on localization, you know, what part of the sure. world. Like a phone number in the U.S. is different than a phone number in Canada, is different than a phone number in Mexico. You know, everybody's got their own formats, that kind of stuff. So the kind of JavaScript that is useful is stuff that you just type it in and it formats it for you. I love it when I get out of a site like that and I don't have to manually format my date or something Same. like that. yeah. Yeah, right. Totally. Versus having to put it in. Oh, you started in the right format. You're missing a slash. Okay, thanks. You know, yeah. so that kind of stuff I think is awesome as compared to okay, is this a valid value for my backend? Yeah, yeah. I think that uh, you know, in that regard, um, I think that backends should be pretty forgiving on what they can accept. So if it's a phone number and you know you're in a U.S. based area and you're expecting a ten digit, ten digit phone number. 
Um, and, or what is it? I guess, no, I guess if you're in an international format and maybe you receive something, you can, and you want to assume that it's a US based number, you can add, you can append the little one ahead of it or something along those lines, right? You don't need to include the dashes or you can include the dashes or allow users to basically send uh, anything that has 10 digits uh, that looks maybe formatted, including parentheses or not, including spaces or not, dashes or not, all of the different number formats, phone number formats that you can imagine, uh, as long as you can parse that into something that the backend can uh, detect as a legitimate phone number, then yeah, just be, be um, uh, less strict on the actual explicit syntax of it. And do the cleanup and the stripping and stuff like that on your back end? Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you can you can do it on the front end as well if is if uh it makes sense. Um, but a lot of the time there's there's a surprising number of uh cases where the best input type is just a plain text field. Mm-hmm. You know? Um but yeah, that's a whole that's a whole other deep dive story as far as user experience and and accessibility and all this other stuff. Yeah, for sure. I mean, even with an HTML uh, text field, you can tell it, okay, this is a number, this is supposed to be a number and give it your little arrows and you can count up or down, you know, if you want to click instead of having to manually change a number, you can tell it text and uh, yeah, date. And so, the, yeah, there's all kinds of HTML stuff built in that will help you. It may not be everything you need, but it'll at least give you a good start. Yeah. And the the I, I have a, I have like a blog post series all about forms as well that I'll I'll share. Um, but the number input, even that is uh, has its own problems because you can imagine uh, a text or a, a form field like a credit card number or a social security number that mm-hmm. appearance-wise, it looks like a number. And so you might be tempted to make it a number field. But the problem with the number input by default is it has a scroll wheel mechanism that when you're hovering over it and you you scroll up or down, the numbers will increment or decrement. And so you can imagine if you're filling out a form and you've put in, let's say, your social security number, and then you want to advance down the page and you're scrolling. Uh, <laughs> but because you've selected that input with the mouse, the mouse is still there. So when you start scrolling, it decrements your social security number. But because it's a big, like, obscure number, you maybe don't notice that it decremented. And so you move the mouse, you scroll down the page, all of a sudden, you've put in the wrong number, <laughs> Right. Right. So again, a good case for just having a text field because after at the end of the day, this data is going to be sent to the back end as text anyway. Every every HTTP request, uh, the the body of that request or the URL search parameters are parsed as strings. So mm-hmm. yeah, um, I was just saying that we've gone we've gone we've gone de- way down into into one of my passion topics, which is forms, and um, yeah, it's. I don't know if we want to keep going down that route, but... Um, well, let's talk about your blog post that we initially talked about on uh, how to upload files with HTML. Okay. Yeah, this this is um, this is an interesting one. And kind of, well, bef- before we get that, I, I, I should mention that uh, it may sound a lot of the time, like I say things like you just don't need JavaScript at all for a lot of things. And the truth is, well, for a lot of things you don't. Um, but I, I believe strongly in the, the principle of progressive enhancement, which is um, if you can build things uh, with features that exist on the platform in HTML, use start there, use that first and, and, and build on top of that. And then whatever you need to do uh, that you can do with CSS to make it an even better experience, then do it with CSS. So for example, with the, the CSS has selectors, there's ways to do uh, hiding and revealing certain content based on, uh, let's say you have a radio input and you select different options and based on which option is selected, you want to reveal maybe more information on the page or not. You can do that with just CSS these days, right? You don't need JavaScript to detect which field is uh, selected and then reveal its res- uh, corresponding uh, data. 
Um, and then whatever you can do then with JavaScript, you should do with JavaScript. And then it goes up and up, right? Whatever you can do uh, uh, on top of that with Vue, go ahead and do with Vue or a library or whatever uh, thing, go ahead. But only when it makes sense and um, as needed. Right. So where does it make sense for forms? Uh, I'd say doing the HTTP request. You can intercept the HTTP request, construct the request based on what the HTML has that the like a form would normally do if you hit submit, uh, and then construct like a fetch request based on the form data. Uh, also form validation. I think that there is a story uh, where you can use JavaScript to do form validation, but you don't maybe don't need an entire library for it. You can base the validation logic off of what the HTML already has so that when JavaScript is available or if the, you know, or if uh, something hasn't gone wrong, there's not an error, there's not uh, a problem with the CDN where the JavaScript lives, or the user's not on a slow device, or the user's not on a spotty network or going on, you know, at an airplane terminal or going through a train or a tunnel or whatever. Um, all of these times that JavaScript can fail uh, are the reasons why progressive enhancement is important, such that you build your forms so that they work with HTML and you can hit submit and even on a slow network, if the page loads and it's just HTML and the user's really quick, they can hit submit and it'll still work. But then when JavaScript is available and everything works as expected, it can intercept the form submit request. It can do the logic to do the validation based on the HTML that's already there. And uh, it can then, if everything looks good, submit the request uh, with using fetch or something like that. Yeah, I can remember back in the day, in the days of, you know, early, early, early browsers, you know, back to Netscape and early Internet Explorer pre version six. Part of the reason for doing progressive enhancement, and I don't know if this is still an issue or not, is that users would go into their browser settings and purposely disable JavaScript. <laughs> you know, for whatever yeah. reason, they didn't want JavaScript functioning in their uh, browser whether it yeah. was security concerns or performance or whatever. And of course, you know, browsers and computers themselves were a lot less uh, powerful back then. Uh, and so I don't, I doubt that anymore. I mean, it's really hard to use the web without JavaScript enabled yeah. unless like, you know, you saying you progressively enhance them. So anymore, it seems to be more of, um, like you said, your browser hasn't been able to download it because of a bad connection or for some reason, the JavaScript isn't loaded in your browser itself. Yeah, that's that's always kind of the first uh, criticism of against progressive enhancement is that, you know, no one turns off JavaScript. And the people that do to turn off JavaScript do it, do it knowingly and so should expect uh, certain websites not to work. And yeah, for the most part, I would agree that I don't think that we should build our applications to support cases where people are turning off JavaScript. But um, there's so many cases where JavaScript can fail, uh, one of which happens to me all the time that I have I have like a very aggressive ad blocker or JavaScript blocker, basically third-party JavaScript blocker on my browser. Mm -hmm. um, and so I have broken websites all the time. Now, maybe I am a little bit, a little bit of a special case because of that, and that's fine. But the the fact still remains that I think that focusing on progressive enhancement has made me a, bit a better developer, has made me feel more trust in my applications that they're going to work. And it, I find I have much fewer bugs. Uh, there's much fewer cases where my application experiences bugs when I've built it in such a way that it can just fall back to at least a minimum working experience mm -hmm. um, in the absence of JavaScript. And I can share a couple of links to some of those articles as well. Um, one of the one of the like numbers that I saw that uh, I think BBC uh, website or like their um, engineering team did some research several years back at this point, but they found that one percent, one point one percent of their uh, users or potentially page loads uh, had experienced a JavaScript failure. Uh, failure, And they found that only 0.2% of those users actually had JavaScript disabled. So the 
maybe not a big enough thing for you to worry about. Maybe check your metrics. And if you have a ton of users that do match that, okay, maybe it's worth fixing, right? 0.2%, I'm not so worried about. 1%, I definitely am. And it's those 1%, the other, you know, 0.9, is that 1% that uh, are made up of people that experience, yeah, maybe ad blocking, maybe bad connection, maybe they're in an airport terminal or on the train or whatever. So many more people are browsing the web. The majority of people are browsing the web on their phones. Mm -hmm. And if you're out and about doing your thing, you can't really rely on a good network, especially outside of places like, I mean, let alone outside of places of the United States, inside the United States, you still can't rely on it, you know? Right. So, um, so yeah. Uh, yeah, we went way off on <laughs> oh, no. different things. Oh, no, that's good. That's, um, that's fine. Let's go. So let's do this. Let's go back to the initial premise about using the platform. Mm-hmm. So going back over previous years and looking at enhancements that have been made both to CSS and to HTML, and maybe JavaScript to a certain extent. JavaScript seems to, in the browser at least, seems to evolve much more slowly than HTML. Well, probably HTML, a little I slower. Think- CSS CSS is the one that's moving so fast it's hard to keep up with, right? Uh, yeah. I know JavaScript, HTML tends to be much slower. You know, I've heard someone say one time it took 10 years just to get the main element added. Yeah. You know. That's a good um, thing. But yeah, yeah, it just means you're being thorough uh, for sure. But what I'm getting at is I'd be curious to see what you what you see as things over the past few years that have sh- that have shifted or have been implemented so much that now you can use the platform where before you would have had to use a library or framework or a tool to do from a web standpoint? Yeah, I think the the first thing that comes to mind is a lot of the progress that has been made in the CSS world. Um, Just because, uh, you know, like, HTML does move slowly. um, And I think that's a good thing. And a lot of HTML's movements have been towards semantic things. So Mm -hmm. a lot of the big shifts that HTML got were in those semantics, Mm -hmm. um, which I don't think you can really replace uh, with javascript or css anyway so i don't know that well anyway uh i think that the 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 best candidate is going to be css because uh if you've been doing this if you've been doing the web dev thing for a while um you know like there's a lot of things that were impossible to do with just css even having a column of elements that are like the same height Right, yes. like that used to require JavaScript to to have a, a a column of elements, and like inherently they have different height, but making their like parent component like stretch so that they look like the same height or something like that. I mean, that's so easy with uh, CSS Grid or Flex these days. Oh yeah, um, oh, and nightmares about floats and and uh, what's it? There's a clear fix and yeah, you know, all the little you know. Yeah special things you had to do just to get your layout to be just, oh man, that gives me nightmares. <laughs> just yeah. thinking about it. Um, also, the has selector is is awesome and can do a lot. I know that uh, sticky position elements is something that also used to require JavaScript that now you don't need. Um, and a lot of that JavaScript depended on very uh, not performant approaches to adding event listeners to like the scroll position of the page. And so you just end up like thrashing the DOM and it was just terrible. And now CSS can just do it without batting an eye, you know? Um, So there's that. I think also uh, there's going to be features that um, have improved from the JavaScript perspective in terms of how, uh, how the... TC39 committee responds to uh, community use cases. So I, I think of things like jQuery being the most predominant library that was used at a certain point, and almost everything in jQuery was adopted by JavaScript because um, it was able to pave the cow path, you know, that then everyone was using, and that uh, influences what we actually end up adopting. And that's that's important for things like TypeScript today. Um, I personally am not a fan of writing TypeScript files. I really like having 
type definitions in my JavaScript though. So I use JS docs, but you know, I'm using TypeScript under the hood to do all the type checking or whatever. But TypeScript is important because it is uh, it is influencing, potentially influencing the direction of JavaScript as far as what we're going to have available in terms of potentially decorators, which you know, gained a lot of traction and then kind of not so much, uh, or type potentially type definitions in TypeScript uh, through the comment blocks or whatever. Um, that is a proposal that's out right now. And these things are important because uh, we can see as a community what people are going to gather around and really use and it becomes ubiquitous. And these are external things that are not part of the platform that do not have to become part of the platform until we can see that the community is using it enough that it makes sense to bring it into the platform, whether that's the you know, browser APIs or the uh, ECMAScript language or whatever. Yeah, case in point, there's a couple of thoughts come to mind here, but case in point for one, I think from a JavaScript standpoint, one that's being worked on, and I don't know the current status of it is the temporal API, mm-hmm. right? Date exactly. and time management. Because for so long, you had things like Moment. And then, you know, that was just huge because it was an all or nothing thing in terms of importing with Moment. And you got stuff like date functions and DayJS and other smaller, more slimmed down versions that were a little more performant. But the idea of the temporal API is to be able to replace those so you don't have to use them anymore. You can just use JavaScript. I don't know how well that functionality, you know, because those libraries did a lot. And I'd be Mm -hmm. curious to see how much is actually implemented in the JavaScript API. Um, But that's, you know, one example of things being added that have usually required libraries in the past. But my second thought, and I'm curious to see your thought on this, if you'd seen this, is you talked about TypeScript. And, uh, you know, TypeScript, what was the the precursor to TypeScript? Uh, Formation? Flow? Flow? Yeah, something like that. You know, and the idea is that typed is better because you can catch all your errors ahead of time and so on and so forth. And uh, it's still one I've resisted. I don't know if so much resisted as not taking the time to really sit down and learn it. You know, there's times when I have to use it because something I'm using already uses it. But, uh, you know, that was the way TypeScript's dominating the world, the JavaScript world. Did you see that Svelte just got rid of it? SvelteKit just yeah. removed TypeScript from it because they figured within, there are enough built-in tools and capabilities that they don't need that extra layer of stuff on top of it. And I start seeing other pushback. I've seen some stuff on Hacker News really lately where like, well, sometimes having a dynamic language is good and not having everything so tightly typed and defined can be a good thing. So I'm just curious to see where you fall on the, the TypeScript side of things, especially with some of these more recent developments. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the recent developments really haven't shifted my opinion. Um, I was introduced to TypeScript learning Angular, and I, I hated learning both at the same time. Angular and I 2? Because uh, that was the one that required Angular uh, TypeScript, if I remember correct. 2 plus. Yeah, it would have been not. I mean, I, I don't know. It was a couple, of, I don't know, probably three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um but I think that I, I don't like the idea of having TypeScript in a project that I am in charge of because I don't like the idea of raising the the bar for folks that want to get started, like junior developers that are going to be joining the team. I don't like people having to learn maybe two things or three things at once, right? Three things being, one, they have to learn uh, potentially JavaScript as a programming language. Two, they have to learn TypeScript. Three, they have to learn my actual code base. And four would be uh, if I'm using something like Vue, right? So that's just more things to learn that aren't really necessary. Now, TypeScript itself offers a lot of benefit. Uh, I like having strongly typed, I like having types in my JavaScript. I just prefer the, the flavor or the syntax using JS docs. And the other reason for that is, once again, because I'm a web development educator, uh, I have to write my code in a way, or I like to write my code in a way that in my project, it's going to look the same as when I copy and paste it into a blog post, which is going to look the same if someone else wants to copy that code and paste it into the browser or paste it into Node or whatever. It's very 
um it's very uh what is it where you know it can it can move in different places isomorphic uh yeah isomorphic yeah there's a there's a word that I'm thinking of, but I can't think of it. That was the one I was thinking of where they talked about the benefits of Node.js because you could use the same JavaScript on the back end and the front end. And so it was all, yeah. you know, that's the only phrase that comes to my mind. Yeah. Um, portable. It's there very portable. That works yeah. too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, aside from that, you know, I think everyone has their own preferences. It's very, it's a lot easier to get started using TypeScript these days. Um yeah, I think TS Node just makes it super easy. Or if you're using Dino, it's built in. And hey, right. that's great if that if that's your thing. Um, JS Docs works great for me. I prefer having the syntax a little bit more separated, where JS Docs is generally like up above the function or variable definition and not in line with it. Mm-hmm. Um, there are cases where JS Docs is really ugly to get something to work, uh, and you know it's just nothing nothing's perfect but uh it works it works well enough for me um but I, I think ultimately uh if the type proposal comes to javascript anyway then you know my stance is that typescript is not the future i think typescript is the present um and it's a very important tool for us to have in the ecosystem particularly because it does help it does provide a uh, a platform to move the language forward that is not the language itself. Mm-hmm. And it can, you know, again, sort of influence the direction of the language without uh, committing, without the language having to commit to it, to these changes. So it's great that we as a community have this as an option. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. So we're hitting up on time here. So uh, before we move to picks, anything else you wanted to touch on real quick? Uh, yeah, I should probably just bring it back to uh, the, the view utensils thing since it's a view podcast and we started there. Um, <laughs> if, if, yeah, I would encourage anyone to, to check it out. Um, all of the code base in there, like if you want to take it and sort of fork it, uh, the documentation, all of the documentation pages link to the source code for the respective component and the components, the source, the source is designed to be something that you can kind of copy and paste into your own code base. If you want, if you don't want to have a dependency on the library. Of course, you wouldn't get up you wouldn't get upgrades or updates in that case, but they're pretty few and far between anyway. Um, and there's a couple shared functions that you would have to rewrite, like a, a a random random string generator or whatever. But for the most part, it's designed to sort of just be self-contained. Um, and yeah, it really follows along this principle of using the platform where it can. A lot of the times, uh, these things around forms and inputs where you need that validation, you want to know if the input is invalid, you can do that uh, in the web platform very easily. But the utensils components do sort of make a nice, convenient wrapper around that that's lightweight and you know pretty easy to implement and, and is very, um, very close to what the platform offers so cool yeah i the url for uh for utensils is a very difficult one and hard to remember it is utensils.com uh we'll place yeah. a link for that in show notes as well as some of austin's uh other posts that we talked about such as the file uploads with html using your phone excuse me your camera from html and and uh some other ones. So those will be all there for your accessing pleasure. Yeah. So the, the file uploads thing is actually, um, that's actually just the first post in the series. Okay. Um, it's about basically all of the things, all of the steps that I would um, follow when dealing with file uploads. So it talks about how to do it with just HTML and then how to enhance that to use JavaScript. And then when you're sending file uploads, you have to find a way to receive them. Uh, you, receiving multi-part form data, essentially. And that post talks about how to do it in Node.js, but it is in a Nuxt.js environment and kind of follows that principle of do the Nuxt-specific the things and separate or abstract the Node-specific things. So it's it's also portable. Uh, and then we go into, you know, optimizing object storage or costs using object storage, optimizing performance with the CDN and doing malware scanning. And that's what I've been 
working on lately. And it's a lot of fun and a lot of deep dive stuff. So it looks like the CDN and malware scans ones aren't done yet. You still working on those posts? Uh, this That's correct. They're, yeah, it's my current work in progress. Cool. Yeah, the uh, links to all of those future posts are on this uh, first one about uploading files with HTML. Think of it, for those of you Jira ticket people, think of it as an epic with different tickets. Yes. Sorry if that traumatized you, remembering those things. I know it does me. Okay, so with that, we will move on to picks. Picks are part of the show where we get to talk about uh, things that we want to talk, talk about that may or may not be tech-related, uh, books, movies, whatever have you. Uh, I always call mine the high point of the week in terms of my, uh, my weekly dad jokes. Didn't really have anything else to pick today, so I'll just go with the, uh, the dad joke. So um, let's go with a simple one. So what did the left eye say to the right eye? <clears throat> Between us, something smells. Oh, gosh. Right, right. That's, that's old school. That's very basic. So last night, my wife and I watched three movies back to back. A lot of binge watching, you know. Fortunately, I was the one who was facing the TV. That one got me. All right. <laughs> and then finally, pigeons must be extremely wealthy because they have no problems putting large deposits on expensive cars. <laughs> among other things. You know, I, 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 uh, every time I have a terrible joke, I think of you. <laughs> And I come up with a lot. I have a very low, I have like no filter for terrible jokes, but. Yeah, yes. the, uh, that's sort of, that's my legacy is if you, if you have a bad joke, think of Steve for sure. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So anyway, what do you got first for picks? Uh, yeah, well, like we said, there's a lot of, I mean, I'm, I don't know what to call myself. Technically, I'm a developer advocate at Akamai. Um, and I'm fortunate that, you know, a lot of my focus is on uh, educating developers. So I just call myself a developer educator. And as part of that, uh, there's a lot of places that I post my content, uh, my website, all of the the links that we talked about today. There's a lot that are related or relevant to forms um, that we'll share. There's, yeah, that utensils thing if people want to check it out. And I also do want to give a shout out to um, Akamai just because um, it's, a well, not just because, you know, they I work there. Check. They, they yeah, pay your money. <laughs> but be, well, yeah, not just that. Um, but because I work there, uh, I do get to see some of the cool stuff that we're working on. And we are uh, pushing out our new uh, cloud computing platform, which uh, basically um, last year we, we had acquired Linode, and, um, which is a really awesome company. Oh, you did? Okay. Ha- has great products. And as a result of now having this whole... Um, Akamai Connected Cloud, which is the Akamai Edge, the CDN side of things with the web application firewalls and uh, malware scanning and all of this cool enterprise level edge compute stuff uh, and connecting that to regular cloud computing or not regular, but, you know, traditional cloud computing. Um, It's just, I'm really excited to see how this builds out to be the most distributed cloud computing platform that also incorporates, you know, enterprise top-level uh, edge um, technology with what you would think of as traditional cloud technology, like managed databases and VPSs and all that. Uh, it should be really cool. So I guess Akamai.com would be the thing to learn more about that. Now, Akamai at its core for what it started out was, if I remember correctly, from my Drupal days, is sort of a video processing platform. Is that right? So Akamai does a lot. I, originally, I think they they originally originated the concept of a CDN, a content delivery network. Mm-hmm. Um, and so with part of that, CDNs have evolved a lot since, you know, over the 20 years that the company's been around. Um, so that was hosting static assets as close to users as possible. But then as technology evolved and there's been a lot of need for, uh, yeah, video streaming, um, we basically have the largest network and some of the best technology around um, taking video content and streaming it to the user at really high quality rates. Um, I can't speak too much to that because most of my experience is on the edge compute side of things. But yeah, there's edge compute, there's uh, 
static file hosting. There's the web application firewalls that are a great way to protect your application as well. So it's been cool. And and I've been there just over a year and, and uh, I'm excited to see how it continues to evolve and, and grow. Cool. So Akamai is the pick of the day. Yeah. Mr. Gill. All righty. So uh, if people want to get a hold of you or find out what you're doing or give you money uh, or break you, uh, where's the best place to, uh, to do that? <laughs> um, if you want to give me money, I'd encourage you to uh, send that money to some open source uh, maintainers uh, aside from myself because I do that for pleasure. But um, yeah, there's a lot of people out there that that we are building really cool projects uh, thanks to their efforts and, and they deserve to, to be recognized. Mm-hmm. And if you just want to hang out with me and learn and watch YouTube videos or hang out on live streams or read blog posts, then uh, austingill.com is a good place, place to find me. Austingill.com. All right. With that, we will wrap up this episode. Thank you, Austin, for coming back. And I'm glad we didn't scare you away from your previous visits. Uh, always nice to have a fellow Portlander on the on the podcast with me, even if he's a transplant from San Diego. <laughs> oh yeah, this has been great. Um, I'm I, I really enjoyed the show, so it's been a good All conversation. Right. Yes, good times. All right, thank you for listening, and we will talk to y'all next time on Views on View.